We are going to be in Isaiah chapter 44, the end of chapter 44, and the begin, all of chapter 45 today. That's where we'll be. Nate did a great job last week of getting us back into our series of Isaiah. We took a little break during Easter to think specifically about the cross and the work of the cross and then the resurrection of Jesus. And so we are back now in our series of Isaiah. We'll be looking at Isaiah 44, verse 24, through the end of chapter 45 today. I uh, became aware of a story this week that I wasn't aware of before, and some of you may have been aware of it if you follow the news a little bit, but the story of Pastor Andrew Brunson, who's a pastor out of North Carolina, and he is um, on trial. In fact, he will begin his trial tomorrow in Turkey. He has been accused of espionage, of spying. He has spent the last 23 years pastoring in Turkey, which is a predominantly Muslim country. And he has been working hard to share the gospel and see people come to know Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he's been put in prison on false charges. And so tomorrow, after 23 years of faithful service in Turkey, tomorrow he will go on trial and face the possibility of 35 years in prison. 35 years, essentially the rest of his life. Sometimes God's ways are confusing. Sometimes God's ways are confusing. And if we're honest, frustrating, yes? Another friend of mine, I had the privilege of being in Austin and visiting a good friend who had just come off the mission field and he was a medical doctor, working with doctors in Ethiopia, training them. And he expressed to me, I just got to spend a good hour and a half to two hours over lunch with him, catching up and hearing about the, just the struggle that he's been wrestling through um, as he has seen so much death over the last three years. And what he would think of as senseless death as a doctor. So many lives that had they been here in an American hospital could have been saved. Pretty easily, actually. Uh, moms dying of cardiac arrest, having just given birth because they didn't have a defibrillator. A thing that most churches just have in their hallway. A thing that most places of work just have sitting somewhere that in case something happens is available. And Jeremy, my friend, shared with me this story. He said, he said I worked really, really hard, Trent, for about a year and a half to get a defibrillator. As, as silly as that sounds, we didn't have one. And I worked to raise the money and to find one that was available and I, because we'd had so many moms that had given birth and then gone into cardiac arrest and I just, it was just seemed senseless to me that we kept losing these women. I said, finally we got one. I just thought, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Finally, finally we've got one. We had this defibrillator and maybe a month later we had, we had the situation arise. A mom is on the table and she's given birth and now her heart, she's going into cardiac arrest and I thought, we're gonna save this one. We're going to be able to save her. He said, I plug the defibrillator in, puff of smoke, engine blows. He said, I turned to God. I said, I don't get you. I don't get you. Why? Turned to the nurse. said, stop, stop doing the chest compression. Stop. It's over. Another mom was lost. Sometimes God's ways are confusing. And if we're honest, frustrating. And before we go forward, before we move into the next part of our sermon, I just want us to pause and I want to specifically pray for Pastor Brunson. Can we do that? Let's bow our head. He begins his trial tomorrow. Just pray to the Lord. Ask for deliverance. Ask for truth to come to light. I'm just going to give you a moment to pray that now.
Lord, hear the prayers of this church as they rise to you with many other prayers around this country and around the world as we pray for Pastor Andrew. We pray for truth and justice. We pray that you would bring to light what is true and that you would bring freedom, that there would not be another day spent in prison. Not one more. Bring freedom. Lord Jesus, vindicate your servant. Watch over his family now. Give comfort to his wife specifically. She wrestles with watching her husband go through this trial. We pray that you would give him favor now with judges and jury. And we say to you that we trust you. As Pastor Andrew has said, he trusts you, we also trust you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll repeat it one more time. Sometimes God's ways are confusing and sometimes they are frustrating. And as we turn to the text that we're going to look at in Isaiah today, that's exactly the situation. God's people are confused and God's people are frustrated. And so the question for us and that we're going to look at in Isaiah is what does God say to his people when they are confused and frustrated? What is it that in the moment of that confusion, in the moment of that frustration, God chooses to communicate to his people? Because as much as sometimes what God might choose to communicate is not what we might think we need, if that's the thing that God, in our confusion and in our frustration, says, this is what I'm going to tell you, then can we trust and believe that that is actually what we need to hear from him? More than what we think we need to hear. Do you follow me, church? Because if God chooses in moments of confusion and frustration to communicate something, we can trust that what he is communicating is the exact right thing to communicate. We're going to see four things that God says to his people, Judah, in the midst of their confusion and frustration. Now, that's where we're headed, but let me give you a little bit of the historical context and catch us up a little bit. As I said, Nate brought us back into our series in Isaiah Last week, but just to give you the context, as we're in Isaiah 44 and 45 this week, one of the things that's helpful to remember is that the first 39 chapters, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the major issue uh, is whether or not Judah is going to trust God to deliver them from Assyria. That's the nation that is threatening them at the time. And if you remember, chapter 39 ends with this amazing deliverance. The army shows up at the gates and God wipes out the army without Judah even lifting a finger. And he says, you don't need to trust in military alliances or in your own strength, your own wisdom. You can trust me. And he, he shows them that they can trust. And then the very next chapter, so that happens in 37 and 38. And then the very next chapter, 39, they're right back to mistrusting God and God says as a result, they make this mistake of saying, we're not gonna trust you. And because they don't, God says, I'm gonna give you over. I didn't give you over to Assyria, but I'm gonna give you over to the nation of Babylon. They're gonna come and they're gonna take you captive and you're gonna live in exile for 70 years in the nation of Babylon. That's what's gonna happen next. And so in chapter 40, we, we make this shift from chapter 39 to chapter 40. We move from present day Isaiah's life and his 
contemporaries, and we transport, if you will, 150 years or so into the future, beginning in chapter 40. And Isaiah is now beginning to speak to the descendants of the people that he lives with as his contemporaries, and he will be speaking to them who will be living in exile as a result of what he has prophesied. So he said this is going to happen, and it does happen about 150 years later. And so beginning in chapter 40 now, we're now talking to people who are living way in the future from Isaiah. And so he's writing to these folks that are in exile in chapters 40 through 55 and following. And so he's writing to them, and that's what's happened. He's been, they've been delivered from Assyria, then they've been given over to Babylon. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, right, if, they, if there weren't people living in exile and wrestling with the idea, how is it that God can say we are his chosen ones and his loved ones when he's given us over to live and a whole generation of us is going to live and die in a country that is not our own among a people who are not God-fearers or God-worshippers? That's going to be our entire life. I'm going to live, I'm going to be born and possibly die in exile. And God still declares, I have chosen you and I love you to this group of people. Would you say that's confusing? Yeah. And then what he's going to tell them now, what Isaiah is going to tell them is good news, but odd news. He's going to say, now, here's what's going to happen. I am going to deliver you. I am going to bring you home I'm going to cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt and I'm going to cause the temple to be rebuilt. You are my chosen people. And they're thinking, this is great news, right? And he says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use Cyrus, the king of Persia, to do that. At which point you and I go, well, that sounds great. But you have to remember that these people are hearing this and they're going, you're going to use who? What you sent us into exile because we were disobedient and unfaithful and you disciplined us and you knew we needed this and so we're living in exile. And what you're gonna tell me is the way you're gonna choose to deliver me from exile is by sending someone who's far worse than I am to rescue me. That doesn't make any sense. He doesn't know you or acknowledge you or care about you and you're gonna use him, this king of this foreign country, to deliver me and rescue me. Isn't there a different way that you can do this? Now, let's be honest. How many of you have ever had God do something in your life and it was a good thing, but you said, I wish you had done that a different way? That's exactly what the people are saying. So they are confused and they are frustrated. Let's look at the text together and we'll see how that fleshes out. And what God says to them now, beginning in chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes, the fools, makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers." who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. 
I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Get used to that phrase, by the way. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. Now prepare yourself, church. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He's talking about Cyrus again now. He says, he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so let's pause there. So just to highlight a few things that happened as we read that text, because I read quite a bit and I intentionally did that. But the first thing you see in the first section at the end of, verse, uh, in the end of chapter 44 is that God promises to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and to repopulate Judah. Did you catch that? He's making a great promise. He's saying, okay, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna bring you home. That's, that's the end of chapter 44. And then that very last verse of 44 and the first nine verses or the first seven verses, sorry, of chapter 45, he tells us, I'm gonna use Cyrus to do that. That's where we get the, that revelation. He says, I'm gonna raise up this king of Persia. He's gonna be the new power in the world and he's gonna be the one that's gonna set you free and send you back to your homeland. Then the next thing that we see in verses eight through 13 is that God's people have a response to that. And their response is not, thank you, God. Their response is, wait, what? And God then tells them a few things. Did you catch the thing about the pot and the clay? And he says, don't question me. Don't question my ways. So that's just kind of the, the, the outline of the text. And then we're gonna look a little further at the rest of the chapter as well. But I just wanted to give you a sense of that's how those kind of chunks of the chapter break down. So here's our question is, what is it? What is it that God will say to us, and you caught some of it already just in the reading, what is it that God will say to us in our moments where we are confused by what he is doing and where we are frustrated? The first thing God says is that everything he does, everything he does is for his people's good. That's the first and, and maybe the most important thing that you need to hear in this word, that everything that God does is for his people's good. So if you look at verse 26, he says, 
He says, uh, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So in other words, what he's saying is when my, when my prophets speak on my behalf, I, I bring to pass what they said, which is evidence that I'm God and they represent me. And then he says, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. So in other words, I'm gonna bring you home, right? Jerusalem, Judah, they're gonna be, all the cities are gonna be inhabited again. He doesn't just say one city, he says all the cities. So in other words, that's a pretty neat thing. He says, I'm gonna bring you home so that all the cities are in your country are gonna be inhabited again. Now there's no one there. They will soon be filled with people. And then he goes on in verse 28 when he's talking about Cyrus and calling him his shepherd. He's gonna fulfill all his purpose. And he is going to say of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So not only will, will all the cities be inhabited again, but Jerusalem, which is the chief city, will be rebuilt and the temple, which is the place where the worship of God would take place according to Old Testament law, that that would be rebuilt as well so that they could resume worshiping God in the way that he had commanded them and called them to worship. So at this point, all of the people should be celebrating. They should be saying, this is great news. We're going to, God is for us. He's working according, he's working out his purposes for our good. And then in verse four of chapter 45, he actually says, the reason I'm gonna use Cyrus, he says, is for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name, though you do not know me. What he's saying is, I am God and I have the ability to use people who have no concept that I even exist to bring about good for my people. Now think about that for a moment because how often do we bemoan when people who we don't like are in positions of authority and positions of power? And we think to ourselves, this is not gonna go well. And sometimes, it, sometimes the result of that is not good, right? But what God is saying is like, I'm in charge of who's in charge. You remember that in the book of Daniel when we studied that, he kept saying that to us? He kept saying, I'm in charge of who's in charge. And because I'm in charge of who's in charge, I'm able to use anyone I want to accomplish any purposes I want. And I want you to know that I love you and I am always working for your good even when you can't see how that's happening. Now, is that a good, good thing for God to say to us? Yeah, the answer is whatever God says to us is a good thing for God to say to us, right? But I'm so glad he starts there because I am fickle and feeble. Okay, maybe you aren't, but I am. And I am so glad that the first thing God says is I am always working for your good. And you may remember, fast forward in the New Testament, then in Romans 8, verse 28, that God affirms this to his New Testament people, not just to, to Judah and Israel, but he says what? For all those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he works all things for good. Works all things for good. That's a fantastic promise. Now, why is this one of the things? Here's what I want to try and get at. I want to try and identify, see if we can identify. Why are these four things that, that we see in Isaiah 44 and 45, why are these the things that God would choose to prioritize saying to his people when they are confused and when they are frustrated? Because some of the next ones are gonna seem like something maybe you wouldn't want him to say when you're confused and frustrated. But the first is this, right? I am working for your good. And here's why I think this is one of the things God chooses to say to us. Number one, because it's easy to believe God has abandoned us, isn't it? It's easy to believe that God has abandoned us. And so the first word to those who are in confusion and in frustration is, I am working for your good. I am working for your good. The second, I think, is this. 
is because he wants us to remember, this is important, church, he wants us to remember that his promises are fixed, that everything that God promises will come to pass. All his promises and all his purposes are completely fixed. They never change, but God is completely free to bring them about in any way he chooses. That's a deeply important thing because sometimes we find ourselves, I will say, I find myself thinking, you should accomplish your purposes in this specific way. And if you're not accomplishing them in the way that I think that you should, then you are not being faithful to your promises. Do you see the difference between those things? It is so important for us. You, trust me, church, you want a God who is completely free to work out his promises and purposes. You want a God who never changes those purposes and promises because he's omniscient and omnipotent and he is good and unchanging. So you want a God whose purposes and promises never change. They are fixed points upon which you can rely and to which you can look as a fixed north star to say this is where things are headed and what God is doing. But you also want a God who is free to go about the accomplishment of those purposes and promises in any way that he deems right. That is not held hostage to our desires that he would do them in a specific or certain way. Because he is above us and beyond us. And that is why we get confused, isn't it? And that is why at points we find ourselves confused. But remember that when you're confused, you're not confused because God's purposes have changed. If you're confused, like me, you're confused because you're wondering why he would choose to bring about his purposes and promises in the way that he is doing. Now let's look at the second thing that he says. The second thing that God says to the people of Judah, and he he would say it to us as well, is both pleasant and difficult circumstances are from him. Both pleasant and difficult circumstances are from him. Look at chapter 45, verse 7. At the end of the section where he's talking about choosing Cyrus and using him, and that's his people aren't fans of that choice. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, perhaps some of us would hear that first truth and we would think, it's awesome that God is working for my good, But if there are are things outside of God's control and that is the cause for my confusion and my frustration. So as long as God's working for my good, that's awesome. But wherever his power comes to its end and its limit, then other things start to take place in my life, right? And other reasons for those things taking place. And so it's nice to know that he's for my good, but what do I do about the stuff that's outside of his control? And what God is saying is, I want you to understand that nothing is outside my control. I am the one who brings about the good and the difficult in your life. I bring the sun and I bring the rain. And whether that's like for the nation of Israel because he needed to bring about a disciplinary measure so that they would would move back into the place they needed to be when he sent them into exile or whether it's because he knows that we will be shaped in the way that we need to be shaped through the difficult thing he has brought into our life. Whichever reason it is, he says, I'm the one that brings it about. And you can trust me. Now, here's the thing. Connect that with the first thing that he said to us, which is he is always working for our what, church? For our good. So is it possible to believe in a God 
who would bring rain into our life and say it is for your good? That's the question that faces each and every one of us. Listen to what Job said in Job chapter two. If you're not familiar with the book of Job, Job had endured difficulties beyond what most of us could imagine. And right at the outset of the book, his wife, his own wife, is saying to him, just curse God and die. Clearly, clearly things have gotten really bad and you should just either abandon God, curse him, be done with it. And this is Job's response. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive disaster? And then this is God's testimony of Job. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Shall we receive good from God and not receive disaster? I do find it interesting because I thought about this this week. I, thought, I found it interesting that I never question God when he brings good, good things into my life. Like I never say, how could you, God? When the sun is shining and I'm healthy and the kids are thriving and there's plenty of money in the bank. and I don't ever, I don't ever say like, I, there's no way you should have ever done this. Right? I just go, cool, awesome. This is pretty much what I deserve. Right? Now, some of you are connecting the dots. Here's the challenge, and I don't want to spend too long on this because some of you are connecting the dots between the reality, right? That you have had somebody perpetrate maybe great evil against you. You've had somebody do something that was absolutely horrendous and it was wrong and it was sinful and it was evil. Right? That's a word we need to pick back up in our cultural vocabulary, by the way, because evil is a real thing. Right? You, and, and you're thinking, so is this saying that God is responsible for evil? Is this saying that God is the one who brought about that evil, sinful thing into my life? And without spending too long trying to unpack thousands of years of theological debate, here's what I'll say to you. The scriptures paint this picture for us. Here's what they testify to. That God is never to be blamed for evil. He is never to be blamed for evil. We are accountable for the evil that we do and for the evil in the world. We are responsible for the sin in a fallen world. We are responsible for that. We are held accountable for it and we will be judged for it. Humankind, that will occur. At the same time, the scriptures testify that God is sovereign over everything that happens on the earth. And it's a paradox. It's a, by paradox, we mean something that we can't quite see how it goes together, but it goes together. And we will one day understand it when we live with him. Here's what he says. I can be the ultimate cause of all things and you can still be responsible for evil and not me. And that's hard to comprehend, but God says, I am above and beyond and the cause of all that occurs and yet you are the one that is responsible and accountable for the evil that occurs in the world. Now, I know that doesn't satisfy, right? Everybody's like, yay, thanks, got it, right? It doesn't satisfy, but let me remind us of the other alternative, okay? Because that's a paradox and it's difficult and it makes us think, is, that, is this just sort of a, a logical trick that God is trying to play on us? But here's the other thing. Think about the other possibility because the other possibility is to say that God either cannot or chooses not to uh, control all things, that there are things outside of his control, whether because he chooses to limit his control because he wants humans to have freedom or because of some mandate at the beginning of time somehow or because he doesn't care enough to do it or because he's limited in his ability to do it. 
right? If that's the other option, then here's what that means. We have no assurance that God wins in the end. If God's control, if his sovereignty is limited, even if it's because he just chooses to allow his people to have freedom to make choices, then at some point, at some point, he has to allow that freedom to to work itself out to its end. And what if that end is something other than the complete victory of God in Jesus Christ? When you recognize that that's the other other alternative to believing that God is sovereign and can cause all things while not being held accountable for evil, and we can't understand that paradox and it's difficult, I would argue to you that it is far better to say that God is sovereign and he can have purposes I don't understand and work things out in a way that I don't understand. That is far better than to live in a world where there is something outside the control of God and something completely random might occur to me and God has no ability to stop it, prevent it, or to control it in any way. Now, I've answered all your questions about the problem of evil, I know, so we'll just move on. Why is this one of the things God chooses to tell us? Why? Why is this one of the things that God would say in verse seven here, I'm, I'm in control of all that occurs? Well, here's why. Because in order to endure great hardship, in the only way I believe to endure great hardship is to believe that that hardship has come to you from a hand of a God who says, I love you and I'm seeking your good. The other option, as I said, is, is randomness being the, the cause. And I'm... I will say, personally, I find it much more comforting and much more life-giving and empowering to walk through suffering, to believe that God has a purpose I may not understand in bringing it into my life, but I will walk in it and trust that he's with me in it, has not abandoned me, and has power to remove it when he chooses to. But that is far better than to say, I am at the whim of a random universe. Or under the hand, the thumb of one who does not love me and who intends evil for me. The third thing that God says here is that it isn't wise to question his ways because we do not know what he knows. It is not wise to question God's ways because we do not know what he knows. God's response to his people's dissatisfaction and questioning him in using Cyrus is not to explain himself. It's not to say, oh, well, let me tell you why I'm doing this. His response is to tell them that they are not in a position to question him. Look at verse nine. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed it, a pot among earthen pots. And then he says, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Now, you might recognize that Paul repeats this same idea. He quotes this verse in Romans chapter nine, talking about the same concept. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. In other words, the image he's painting is a metaphor. And he's saying, imagine a pot that's been made and says, you didn't put a handle on me. I'd really like to have a handle. I'd really be more effective at being a pot if you would have placed a handle on me. He says, the pot does not question its maker about how it has been made or in what shape it has been fashioned. And then he goes on, and maybe we can relate to this one a little bit more than the metaphor of the pot. He says, Who says to a dad, what are you begetting when he creates a child? And who says to a mom, and all the moms are gonna say amen to this one, what are you giving birth to? Right, how would that go if someone walked in and be like, nah, I don't like the kid that you're giving birth to right now. Right, all the mamas would go, get out of the room. Right, he says, 
essentially, you are not in a position to question me. In verses 11 and 12, look at what he says. He says, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. In other words, he's saying, I'm the God who created everything that exists before it ever existed and saw all eternity past and all eternity future. I know everything and I possess all power. Do you really think that you're in a position to question me about my ways? Now, that might sound cold. Does that sound a little cold? I mean, it's kind of like, I'm hurting here, God. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. And I just, I'm going to ask you why you are doing what you're doing. And God's response to that is not, you would think that the loving response in that moment would be to say, oh, sit down. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you what I'm up to, okay? Sit down with me. Let me put my arm around you. And his response, I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. It sounds a little cold to me, right? You're not in a position to question me. That's his response. Let me tell you why I think God is doing it. Like, why is this one of the things that God chooses to say when we're in our confusion and we're in our frustration? I think it's because of this. God knows that if he were to, if he were to answer, now sometimes he may, he may say to us, well, I'm not saying these are the only four things, by the way, that God ever says to us in our confusion and frustration, but these seem like four important ones since he put them in his word right here. Sometimes he may answer our why, but I think often he doesn't. And the reason I think God chooses not to answer our why, like why are you allowing this or why are you doing this, is because he knows that what that does is often it feeds our sense that we are owed an answer by God. And it feeds our sense that our real sense of trust and our real sense of confidence comes from being able to understand and control our circumstances. We think that if we know the answer to the why question, we will be able to make it all better. And God says that's not the case. And so what God does is he is working us as fast as he can to a place of submission and trust. That's his aim. I think that's why God says here, you're not in a position to question me. Rest in me. Remember what I said before, I'm working for your good? And remember what I said before, that I, I'm in control of everything? I bring the sun, I bring the rain. And because you know I'm in control, and because you know I love you and I'm working for your good, what I want to do is not answer your why questions so that you are reinforced in your sense that you're owed an answer or reinforced in your sense that if you could just understand and comprehend what's happening around you and get your bearings, that you would then be okay. What I want you to know is that the only way you'll be okay is when you submit yourself to me and trust me completely. And I'm gonna say this to you, you're not in a position to question my ways in the same way that a pot is not in a position to question how it has been made by the potter. And I'm gonna say that to you because the best thing for you is to move as quickly as possible to a place of submission and trust. I think that's why God sounds cold but is actually doing something very merciful here. Rather than reinforce us in our own intellectual sense that, that we should be in charge and in control and understanding. He says, that's actually not what you need. Actually not what you need. Now I love, here's a good balance to this text, by the way. First Kings chapter 19, when Elijah is really confused and God has called him and he's like, I'm the only one left and everybody else has been killed. And I, like, he's doing the same thing. Why God, what's going on? And God does two things that I love. The first thing he does he gives him a nap and a snack and a friend. 
you need a nap. I'm gonna bring a snack to you in the middle of the desert. And then he said, I'm gonna bring you a friend. I'm gonna bring you Elisha. That's awesome. Okay, so that's his, sometimes he's like, let me show you the evidence that I love you and I'm working for your good and I'm in control. I'm gonna bring you a nap, a snack, and a friend. And then, and then when Isaiah's like, why? And he's in the, he's in the mountain in the cave. I don't know if y'all remember this or not. He's in the mountain in the cave and he's saying, God, what's the deal? And he repeats the same questions to God twice and God does not answer those questions, but what does God do? He shows up and he manifests his presence there in such a way that Elijah all of a sudden goes, okay, you're in charge and I trust you. That's essentially what happens. I trust you. I love 1 Kings 19, mainly because of the nap snack friend thing, okay? So know that God is good. Fourth thing that, that happens here in the text. As he says, the fourth thing God says, he says, I want people from every nation to know that I am the only God. I want people from every nation. I am, remember I said his purposes don't change? This is the purpose that will never change. God is working and wants to work through you to bring people from every nation into his kingdom. He wants them to know he's dead set on it. Whatever you think God should be about in your life, this is what he's about in the universe and so it's what he wants to be about in your life. And this is what he says in verse six and in verse 22 and verse 23. In verse six, he says, the reason is using Cyrus is so that people may know from the rising of the sun, where does the sun rise, church? In the east and from the west that there is none besides me. So when he says from the rising of the sun and from the west, what's he saying? Everywhere, right? He's saying so that people from everywhere, because here's the deal. This is the only answer to why that he gives them at all. They're asking, why Cyrus? What's that about? And his answer is, because I don't want people to think that I'm just the God of you. I want them to know I'm the God of every nation. I'm in charge of it all. And if I just use you, then everyone goes, yeah, that's the God of those people. And we've got this God over here and they've got that God over there and we'll all figure out whose God is strongest when we go to war with one another. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. I don't prove my worth by causing you to be victorious in war. I prove my worth by controlling the events of every nation in a way that they don't even understand I'm controlling them. I'm in charge of everything. Every nation. I'm the God of it all. And that's what he wants them to know by using Cyrus. And then in verse 22 and verse 23, which we hadn't read before, he says this. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. What a great invitation. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I told you, get ready for it, get used to it. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? Some of you who know Philippians chapter two. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, according to Philippians 2, which is borrowing from Isaiah here and saying, that is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one that will bring about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. And so God says, I am about bringing people from every nation and every tribe. So why is this one of the things that God tells us? Because he wants to remind us in the midst of our confusion and frustration that we are a part of a bigger story 
that your life and my life is a part of something much bigger than us. Now, we need to know that when we're confused and frustrated because the thing we can recognize is that that promise and that purpose of God is unchanging. And because it's unchanging, he is working it out. And here's the question. Is it worth my suffering and even my death to see 100 people come into the kingdom of God? What about 50? What about 20 or 10? What about one? Would I lay down my life so that God's purposes of bringing people from every tribe and nation and tongue to give him glory at the foot of the throne would be served? Is it enough to be a part of God's purposes? This is what God is about. And he reminds us. And he's not insensitive to the individuals through whom he's bringing it about. That's the thing. Look at where we started. Look at our bookends. He begins by saying, I'm for your good. I love you. I'm working for your good. And he ends with the bookend of saying, and by the way, I'm bringing people from every nation. I'm working in the small, minute details of your life, working good for you. For each individual called according to my purpose who loves me. And I am working to see people from every nation come to know me in the grand scale. He is in the small. He is in the big. These are the four things he repeats to us and says to us in the midst of our confusion and frustration. And as I said, it's not the only four things that God ever says when we're confused or frustrated. But they seem deeply important to me. And the more I pondered it this week, the more I realized if I really grasp these four things... If I really grasped them in the midst of my great difficulty, I could see, I could see with different eyes. So look for God, church, look for God to speak these things to you when you are confused by his ways. Look for how he is saying to you, because he will say it again to you, he is working for your good. Look for how he may say to you that everything you are going through is from him. Look for how he may say to him, don't question me, trust me, rest in me. And look for how he may be saying to you, I am working through you to bring about the salvation of people from every people group. Now let's close with this. In fact, uh, worship team, you guys can come on up. We're gonna close. And then I, I wanna invite some time for prayer here. All of these, these four things that God says to us, the reason that they're not cold and the reason that they are not harsh and the reason that they are not just nice little platitudes is because God sacrificed his son on a cross and when he did so what he proclaimed is I can bring about great good from the worst evil I can have purposes in the midst of something very confusing and frustrating that you could never possibly understand but I can be working something so magnificent that's beyond your comprehension and when you suffer, know that I have suffered. When you are confused and frustrated, know that I sent my son into the world to suffer so that I am not unempathetic or indifferent towards your great difficulty. It's how the promise that I'm working all things for your good actually makes any sense whatsoever. The cross is the only thing that makes sense of it. Listen to what Pastor Andrew Brunson wrote from prison. Just a simple sentence. From his prison cell in Izmir, he wrote recently, let it be clear, I am in prison not for anything I have done wrong, but because of who I am, a Christian pastor. I 
desperately miss my wife and children. Yet, I believe this to be true. It is an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ, as many have before me. My deepest thanks for all those around the world who are standing with me and praying for me. Let's remember him tomorrow as he goes to trial together. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you. We give ourselves to you. Just pray, Father, that you would, by the power of your spirit, take your word, cause it to land in our hearts in just the right way now. In just the right way. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.